0: Ho, 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 and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast. We are joined by a special guest. She's our Christmas present to you, oh good people (laughs) at home. We are joined by the woman who arguably probably doesn't need an introduction, but I'm going to take a stab at it anyway. We're joined by Dr. Sarah Ballantyne. Some of you might remember when I have talked about what I call the rise of paleo, which was like that 2012, 2013, 2014 kind of era. And boy oh boy did you get famous in that time period i had your book i followed your website basically i'm saying that i'm a stalker at this point so take that (laughs) for what it is but seriously i've been a big fan of your work and we were able to connect on social media more recently and i'm really excited to talk about your new work with nutravore you have a new book coming out i mean holy crap where do we begin but Buckle up, people, because we're going to nerd out about nutrition and gut health for the next hour plus with not and only Dr. Sarah Ballantyne. So round of applause.
1: Woo! Uh, thank you so much. I am so excited to be here and uh, just nerd—I nerding out is my favorite activity. So you, you don't awesome. need to ask me twice.
0: Then we won't. Agreed. <laughs> um yeah, I mean let's let's just start off because I think I want to give people a sense of where you've been at and what you're up to these these days. Um Nutrivor. Can we can we start by talking a little bit about Nutrivor? So this is a website. You can go to it, it's all totally accessible and free. I think you have a Patreon, so if people want more content, they could go to your Patreon, but you've made yes. this resource free and available to use. And oh my God, it's the nerd's delight. You could click on a nutrient and learn about what foods have that nutrient. You could click on a food and learn what's in that food. It, there's research, there's all sorts of fun stuff. So can you maybe tell us about how did NutriVore come to be? Like, what is it? What is your vision for this? And should people go check it out? I assume the answer to that is
1: yes. The, the Yes. Let's start with the answer to the final question, which is a resounding <laughs> yes, yes, please. But I think, um, I, I think my my vision with NutriVore, it really came out of being an integral part of the the wellness community and seeing the rise of ever more restrictive diet patterns and the problems that people were running into by cutting out more and more foods. And I think,, um, I know that we're kind of seeing this like across the wellness community. I think it's human nature right we define all of these different therapeutic diet approaches based on what you eliminate or avoid and uh you fall so you follow this thing that matches up with whatever uh you know symptoms or ailments you're facing you have some success um and maybe you either backslide or there's some other health thing that you want to accomplish And because cutting stuff out kind of got you a little bit down the road, it's sort of like this natural next approach to like, okay, well, now I just need to cut out more things. And what's happening is um, we're seeing a lot of people just cut out more things and cut out more things, combining protocols, and now I can't eat this list of 200 different foods and what that's doing is it's magnifying a problem that already exists, like it exists outside of the wellness community, as well as inside the wellness community, is that nearly all of us are not getting all of the nutrients that our bodies need from the foods we eat. And the more restricted and limited our diets are, the more likely that is to happen, the more likely that is to uh, apply to multiple different nutrients. And then we're basically like digging the hole even deeper. Deeper because nutrient shortfalls, so not even nutrient deficiency, right? Nutrient deficiency causes things like scurvy and beriberi and night blindness. But nutrient shortfalls, just not getting enough of all of these nutrients that our bodies need, but not being so deficient that we're causing a disease of deficiency, a nutrient shortfall is associated with every single thing that can go wrong with our bodies. Because our our bodies are made up of multiple biological systems, 12 to 14, depending on exactly how you want to divide them. And each biological system has a collection of nutritional resources that it needs to function. If you don't provide that biological system with the nutritional resources it needs, you start to put strain on the system. So maybe you alter a biochemical pathway to one that's Uh, more desirable or more resource-intensive or produces some kind of undesirable byproduct. That strain builds up over time, and that increases the likelihood it interacts then with things like lifestyle factors, stress, right, Uh, inactivity. It interacts with genetic predispositions. It interacts with environmental exposures, with social determinants of health. And you basically create a system where the likelihood of developing a condition that affects that system that doesn't have the nutritional resources it needs to function normally, that likelihood increases dramatically. So following a, a therapeutic diet with the goal of fixing a health problem and instead magnifying the number or the severity of nutrient shortfalls you have ultimately leads to worse health outcomes. So for me, NutriVore is the answer to that problem. So it is not a diet. There's no list of yes foods and no foods. There's no rigid structure. It's simply a dietary philosophy where the one and only goal, the beginning, middle, and end of it is to get all of the nutrients our bodies need from the foods we eat. And so what I'm building with NutriVore, the website, with all of the content I'm creating on social media, with my upcoming book, NutriVore, that's coming out in May, is the nutritional sciences education to inform those day cho- day-to-day choices so that you can apply that NutriVore philosophy to however you eat now. So you can look at, I'm following this protocol for Uh, whatever reason. Um, Now, how do I identify the really important foods that will be nutritional contributors within this framework so that I don't have those nutrient shortfalls? Or maybe I've identified nutrients that I just can't get, and I need to talk to my doctor or my dietitian or my nutritionist about a supplementation strategy to make sure that I'm filling those gaps. So NutriVore really is... Uh, it's a philosophy, but it's also this broad nutritional sciences education so that people can understand where their nutrients are coming from.
0: And, you know, I feel like at some weird point, this is getting back to what I think Amy and I have jokingly called like nutrition 101 in a weird way. Yeah. And, and like, I'll give credit to the registered dietitian in the house here. Amy, is this not the kind of stuff that's focused on a lot in like a dietetic program? like, oh, here are the vitamins and minerals, here's why they're important. Here are the bodily systems that use these vitamins and minerals, and what can result in a deficiency. Here's the RDA that we assume that most people roughly need. And then when when nutritionists and dietitians, particularly if they're not super specialized into like, I'm the SIBO dietitian, or I'm the PCOS dietitian, I get the sense that nutritional professionals, should be looking for nutritional adequacy and looking for insufficiencies and obvious deficiencies. Like, we need to get back to that.
2: No, completely. I mean, I think in terms of general dietetics, I mean, at the core of general dietetics is certainly looking at making sure the body's nourished. And I think what Sarah was saying too is in the effort of controlling symptoms or starving the SIBO or some kind of idea that creates a restriction, it leads to malnutrition to some degree, maybe not like outright, an outright deficiency. But um, yeah, the more that you're restricting, the more chances that your body could be not functional. And so with a variety of different systems. And yeah, I mean, the thing that's so interesting to me, especially in the IBS space, there seems to be this idea that you know, a little bit of weight loss or is normal when you're cutting out foods or some of these things are normal. There's a normalization of some things that would definitely be flagged in a traditional RD setting. So, you know, if someone was losing weight pretty rapidly, it would be like, oh, we definitely need to pay attention to this, like, because you're losing nutrition. That's the number one thing that RDs do in a hospital setting is try to prevent weight loss because they know that the outcomes are poor in a hospital setting when someone's losing weight. Um, But yeah, I think in the, in the health and wellness space, again, the, the idea that you have to eat a certain way or the rigidity of that uh, thought process and around restrictive eating can really just be blinding and lead to, um, you know, having your horse binders on to, to a SIBO or an IBS diet instead of, okay, but if that's preventing me from nourishing myself, it could be putting me in a deeper hole um and that's usually again exactly what we see in the IBS setting but yeah again i love the idea of nutrivore and and again it being just such a solid foundation for someone to come to f- in in the IBS space too because i think nutrition gets totally lost when it becomes yeah. about fodmap avoidance and eliminating uh fermentable fibers and one study that is really interesting to me that kind of highlights this point too, to some degree is they had, there was a study that compared FODMAP to Mediterranean diet. So like Mediterranean Mm -hmm. diets, kind of more balanced vegetable rich. So they had people go on different diets. So like their typical diet compared to FODMAP compared to how they felt on Mediterranean. And again, FODMAP is about restriction. Mediterranean was more about additions, kind of what you're talking about. What can you add to the diet? To be better nourished, and what they found was that pretty much the majority of participants would prefer to be on Mediterranean because they felt a lot better, like their their gut symptoms were better, and then their quality of life wasn't worse. Like with FODMAP too, it it was stressful to be low FODMAP even if their symptoms were a bit reduced. So it was just a kind of an interesting dynamic because it's sort of a a study a similar study of what you're talking about where one diet's kind of more focused on adding more of some of these like tenants of the Mediterranean di- Mediterranean diet, like vegetables and healthy fats and things like that. Whereas the other diet is more like restriction, pull things out of the diet and hope that reduces symptoms. Um, but yeah, in reality, it seems like in when we work with people, it seems like the more we can add in, the better someone feels. And the more they restrict, the worse someone feels over time. But it's that slippery slope, like you were saying. That the if you get some relief at first from restriction, it can be really hard to to avoid that urge to keep cutting. And so, yeah, it's yeah, it's it, it's a real slippery slope, I think, when it comes to the the restrictive diets.
1: I, I think well, the other challenge with restrictive diets is that, um, I mean they they have a higher likelihood of leading to disordered eating patterns. But the the amount of fear of food that we learn through restrictive diets also doesn't serve us, right? Like stress is a contributor to IBS, right? Stress alters the composition of the gut microbiome, typically unfavorably, Um, not to mention it impacts immune function, it impacts the cardiovascular system, um, our mental health greatly impacted by stress. And what is learned through restrictive diets is... Fear of foods. And we're magnifying that at a moment on the internet where fear sells. And so we see a lot of influencers uh, selling their supplement lines or their coaching services with fear based marketing, right? So here is this additional food that you need to be terrified of because it's causing all of these bad things, never mind the complete lack of scientific evidence to support those claims. And I think that as a society we care so much about our health and we're trying to be very proactive and what we're doing at that right with with that action to try to be very proactive is we are actually greatly magnifying our chronic stress load because of the fear we are developing of eating the wrong thing of eating a small amount of this food that is on this no list and i think that's why really like changing the entire paradigm towards a permissive structure, where we focus on the foods that are going to improve our systems, our symptoms, right? Like, IBS is as much about what you add as it is about what you take away, right? So we still want to support probiotic strains of bacteria, they still need fermentable substrate. They're not going to thrive if we try to, you know, we starve out all the bad bacteria, we starve out the good ones at the same time. Our gut bacteria are super sensitive (laughs) to... to our nutrient status, right? Like our vitamin D levels impact what bacteria are going to be growing in there. So, by shifting the entire conversation towards what can we add to our diets that are going to support our health, that are going to help alleviate our symptoms, what are the nutrients that I really need to focus on because they're in particular linked with whatever uh, chronic health condition I'm trying to deal with? And we kind of let those good food choices, right? Those really health supportive food choices. Kind of displace most of the ones that aren't serving us, but we don't have to cut out anything. That goes from this mindset of fear. To something that's really sustainable, something that is uh, a lifestyle that we can eat for our whole lives instead of a diet that means I can't do all of these different things. I can't go to this potluck. I can't go to this restaurant. I can't travel, right? Instead of a diet that is eroding quality of life, we're looking at a permissive structure that actually ends up healing our relationship with food.
0: Well, and going back to the relationship bit too, if you think about it, the idea of cutting out a bad food it's oftentimes woven in with this idea that I have to do this really hard sucky diet because I'm broken somehow and I need to fix whatever's broken. That's a really like terrible mindfuck, pardon the expression, to get into. And I think virtually all of our listeners and all of our clients that we work with are in that place of like, I've somehow broken, I need to fix it. And that's what that's what the internet sells you. That's what functional medicine as a community largely sells you this idea of fixing yourself. And I just I don't think it's serving anyone versus, you know, this this sort of strategy of, I'm going to eat nutrient dense foods, most of the time. I think that to get there, you almost need to have some self compassion and self love. You're doing this because you love yourself and because you want to be healthy, and strong for the rest of your life, and you know that it's good for you. And you know that it's like a sustainable lifestyle. Yes, maybe it would be 1% more enjoyable to binge the bag of Doritos a little bit more frequently. But like, you know, there's a trade off, it would be arguably more fun to never floss your teeth again. Mm -hmm. But that's going to bite you in the butt someday, when you get a bunch of cavities, and you have to have dentures and your teeth are falling out. So it's like, I think that you have to approach this this method that you're describing with a little bit more self-love and self-compassion versus, yeah. again, like the brokenness kind of stuff that we see much more frequently.
1: I think the other issue with the I, I'm broken, I need to fix me mentality is it's healthist, right? It implies that your health is your fault and that you somehow failed to do something that was really important uh, in order to support good health. Like meanwhile, Diet maybe accounts for forty to fifty percent of health outcomes sort of like at the highest end of the range of those approximations. Uh, lifestyle is um, sort of incorporated in there, but like there's other health related behaviors. there's our environment, there's uh, our socioeconomic status, right? Our zip code impacts our health, uh, our genetics, right social determinants of health. and I think that when we when we approach it as Uh, you're broken, here's the diet that's going to fix you. There's this aspect of the the psychology of that that is uh, feeding this like guilt blame cycle that A, doesn't reflect the reality, right? Our our health is not entirely determined by our choices. Our choices are not all all determined by willpower, right? Our choices are influenced by all of these different factors that uh, collectively uh, influence our lives. And when we, when we boil this down to this really simplistic idea of all you need to do is cut out all of these right, food toxins, um, what we're doing is we are implying blame, which then again sort of like magnifies the chances of developing disordered eating patterns, which again then magnifies the, the chances of having nutrient shortfalls, which are contributing to increased health risk that doesn't mean they're directly causing health problems.
0: Well, and I was just telling Amy recently. So at maybe once or twice a year, I go into the Facebook groups. Like not my to be clear, not a group that I manage, but like I'll go on an IBS group or a SIBO group, and I just kind of scroll, and I want to get a sense of what are people talking about, what yeah. is confusing to to my people, like what questions do they have, what would be interesting, frankly, if I posted it on YouTube, and I'm just kind of casually scrolling, and a the amount of fear mongering. And just I was getting anxious, being in that group for 20 minutes, and yeah. I don't even have IBS anymore. To be clear, like, I can't imagine how terrifying it would be if I still had tummy problems. But there's oftentimes you'll see this when people are, are oftentimes in those groups, you will see somebody brand new, fresh off the street, bright eyed and bushy tailed, and they come in and they're like, guys, <laughs> I just got my SIBO breath test results back today. Oh my God! I have SIBO. What do I do? And it opens up this shitstorm of craziness where people are like, "You have to starve it. You have to do low fodmap. You can never eat onion again. How could you even think? No, you have to do carnivore. You have to do this. You have to nuke it. You have to." And it's like, wow, this is so stressful. But also, there is this air of. You have to do low fodmap or carnivore or keto, whatever the diet might be. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, shame on you. Yeah, that's irresponsible. Like you're never going to get better. And it's it is it's very like shameful, blaming, point the finger at you kind of behavior. And you see this all the damn time in the online IBS and SIBO space. Meanwhile, Amy. Okay, again, pulling the registered dietitian of the okay. house here. You and I both do chronometer tracking and food diaries with our clients. Mm-hmm. I'm going to wager a bet right now. I can think of one guy who does not have a single insufficiency or deficiency on his chronometer tracking. He's the yeah. exception, not the norm, and what? he's really just yeah. going so above and beyond. I'm talking like the guy's eating octopus, for crying <laughs> out loud. <laughs> That's the level I'm talking. So I have one dude – out of however many people I've worked with who looks actually nutrient replete on food diary tracking, what are your Have you ever had a single person where you're like, damn, you're hitting everything on chronometer? Or would you agree that 100% of our patient population has at <coughs> least a few nutrient deficiencies?
2: I mean, it has to be. I have one lady who I've worked with for a long time where we've gotten to the point of going in and really making sure her chronometer looks pretty pristine because that's her goal at this point is to really hone in on the nutrition side which we do with every client but with her she's doing an amazing job but that's the only one I can really think of where I've done a chronometer and been like
0: wow you're doing amazing two people yeah I know it's and it, it's and again these people are doing low FODMAP and low fistamine sometimes low oxalate sometimes low fermentation and it's just <sighs> well
2: it and I think you guys both touched on this too. And I know Nikki and I have talked about this a lot. In In particular, in the IBS SIBO communities, there's a really high degree of health anxiety and hypervigilance already. So that if you mm-hmm. throw in, these foods are bad, and see this list of red foods, never eat that again. So a lot of times it is particularly, I think, intense in the IBS space, because there's already a little bit of a higher percentage of hypervigilance and health anxiety.
0: Um, and but yeah, disordered it, eating. And we were well, talking just, about yeah, this casually sure. recently. There are studies that show higher rates of disordered eating in IBS.
2: Yeah, I think they were saying that 98% of people with IBS have at least one food avoidance, which is wild to think about. So, super high percentage. avoid at least some foods to try to prevent symptoms.
1: I mean, IBS erodes your quality of life. Yeah. uh, Notably, uh, having also uh, suffered from IBSC. I I don't anymore, but I did for 10, 12 years. Um, And I think there's a desperation for solutions, right? You go to the doctor and they say, depending on which form you have, here's this uh, medication that manages side effects not particularly well that tends to cause the other <laughs> thing to happen uh whichever side you tend to go on right and um and i think that there's so much desperation to find a solution that i think it's normal right to, to especially when you're combining that right. with how most diets are described on the internet by foods that you avoid like i i think that is a very natural progression when you are desperate to be able to go through a day where you don't have to be 20 feet from the bathroom. Um, And I think that's part Mm. of how diet culture is sort of preying on our vulnerabilities because our quality of life when we're dealing with these conditions is miserable and we're desperate. And uh, that suddenly that $500 a month supplement looks like a good trade for all of the symptoms that I'm dealing with and i think that is why a permissive dietary structure um where why talking about foods in a positive light what you can gain from adding these foods back in there's there's almost none of that right now in the wellness community online almost all of the communication around therapeutic diet is based on foods to avoid and i think that it it is magnifying and as you said, Amy, those health anxieties that are right. already there—it's predatory marketing. I think it is. Um, certainly, I feel responsible to be like the voice of like clarity and reason in that space, where I can be a calming influence instead of one that continues to peddle in fear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. and it. One other thing too, it, I think unfortunately too you have a lot of practitioners that don't have specific understanding on nutrition as a whole so you have maybe yes. a maybe a md or something that you know knows that low fodmap can help with ibs and they say here's a, a pamphlet or something that has the red the green the yellow all the food list and they're trying i think their intentions are good but sometimes they can mismanage the process because they're not mm-hmm. really hands-on guiding the person. So I've seen that a lot because low fod map is not meant to be a permanent thing, but people yeah. you know take and, take it and run with it because may- maybe like you said they're desperate and they feel good on low fod map and someone says, "Oh, you have to get off it," but they have no idea how to do that. Um and I think I, I wish that if you some of these diets have a time and place. So from my standpoint, Mm -hmm. low FODMAP has a total time and place to do. But I wish that more people could do it with someone that could guide them and tell them how to reintroduce because even Monash, the people that develop low FODMAP, it's supposed to be like a six to eight week thing, not a lifestyle uh, change. So I think that that's a big misunderstanding too. Like you said, the, the wellness space has sort of taken something And it's been misused and abused a little bit. Um, And part of that, again, I think people get stuck on these diets because they're scared and it's worked. And then I think part of it is sometimes providers in the wellness space in general being like, you have to stay on this diet or you have to starve the SIBO and kind of, like you said, scaring people into persisting on something that was never meant to be a long-term solution. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I agree. I think that it is intentionally predatory on some parts. I think also, you know, to be quite frank, and I and I'm gonna say this as somebody who's done a lot of training in functional medicine, and my primary degree is as a chiropractor. So take this, you know, I'm not a dietitian, I'm not a nutritionist, but to be honest, like when I got into functional medicine, and you know, they say food is medicine, food is medicine. And I'll tell you now, all these years later. Functional medicine will tell you food is medicine until the cows come home, but they only ever teach you to eliminate the bad food 99% of the time. There's virtually no conversation of actually using food as medicine. Like, oh, you could use some more vitamin C or some more whatever. There's virtually never the conversation unless they do fancy fancy blood work and they see a deficiency, but they're almost always going to jump to a vitamin or a supplement anyway. But it's it's really frustrating, but I will say – I think part of it's in the education, even, that I went through a lot of functional medicine training, and I kind of at at one point had a little bit of an air of arrogance thinking, yeah, I know nutrition. But then I started doing this podcast with this really cool chick who's a registered dietitian, And I realized, wow, like I didn't, I wasn't as detailed with the nutrition as I could have been. Like, and I started doing much more detailed food diaries and using chronometer and really looking at nutritional adequacy in a different way. But I think that a lot of these functional medicine providers genuinely believe that they are nutrition experts. Mm -hmm. And they really think that they're doing this great, wonderful thing. Food is medicine. Hooray for us. Let's all clap for each other at the IFM conference. And like, they don't even realize they're so stuck in that system that they don't realize how broken it is. But here we're going to make fun of conventional medicine all day, every day. But at least conventional GI doctors will occasionally refer to an RD.
1: So I don't know—is one really better than the other? I don't know. Um, I think Amy's point about there being a time and place for these dietary strategies, but the the need for additional guidance than a, a pamphlet that's given in a at a at a doctor's visit is really important because I think, right, food, food can be medicine. I mean, that, that I think is the reality is that we can improve uh, a lot of different chronic conditions. That's not saying that food is ever going to be a cure. Um, I mean, obviously there's, there's some situations where it can be, but we're generally talking about improving symptoms, improving quality of life. Um, Food can make a big difference to our health um, and I think it's important to know that there is um, there is some empowerment to be gained by learning about nutrients and what foods contain them and how to choose different foods to get the full range of nutrients that we need and start to make different food choices. But the need for that in-depth understanding, right? So either working with as somebody who who really does have that in-depth understanding, like a registered dietitian. Or we can be self-taught. like i'm I'm a firm believer in uh, you know the self-education that we can get online, but having some internet literacy to be able to know where we're getting good quality information, to be able to to have that knowledge base to be able to navigate a therapeutic diet and navigate. Um, how right? How do we add fodmaps back in? Under what timeframe? How uh, cautiously? Um, which type do I start with? Uh, and then how aggressively do I increase them? And what do I need to support my gastrointestinal tract and my gut microbiome while I'm challenging it with these ultra fermentable uh, fibers? I I think that is where a really e- either. An expert, right? And having access, right? Very few people actually have access to that type of expertise, whether at their doctor's office or their functional medicine specialists or in their community in any way, or being able to find the education to teach ourselves that information so that we can uh, apply that information to our to our own choices. I think that what's missing is that nutritional sciences knowledge base to be able to navigate when this therapeutic diet is appropriate and then how do I, how long do I follow it? What what does the path on the other side look like? So we're not getting stuck in that restrictive mindset.
0: Well, and I give you so much credit too for the record that again, Nutrophor is just it it's out in the open internet and just any going back to the idea of accessibility, like anybody with an internet connection could access NutriVore. And if they are curious and they want to learn more and they care about their health, they can hop on your website. And again, they could get lost for hours on end in the best possible way, yep. learning about nutrients, learning about you know, fiber and vitamins and minerals. And it's it's such a wonderful resource. And I give you the world of credit for not putting that behind a paywall and having oh, thank it you. out for everybody to benefit from. I feel like NutriVore plus the free chronometer app would get, shine light on so many people's situation, and you could use both of them for free, which is tremendous.
1: Yeah. I think uh, for me in building the Nutra website, um, it, that really came out of looking for that information myself and it not really existing on the internet, right? Um, the, the way that my team and I are compiling this information, it is incredibly labor-intensive, because we're tracking down this information in scientific studies, in textbooks, um, in places that are not accessible to the average person. And I I haven't found a website that exists that uh, just puts all of the different health effects uh, of a nutrient into an article that's really easy to navigate and then links you to the foods that are really good sources of that nutrient. I haven't found a like Nutrition Facts website that actually then tells you what each nutrient does in your body and why this food providing, you know, this much vitamin C makes it so valuable for this particular health condition. So creating this resource, uh, I mean, it's a ton of work, right? Nutra for right now, I do believe you could spend days and probably only see a small corner of the site. Um, but it is still actually, at this point, a small fraction of the complete vision that I have for this resource so I really want it to be a one-stop shop for learning about nutrients um, and learning about how uh, nutrients can like as a as a person right really personally improve my health the things that I am dealing with and faced with um, and doing that in a way that doesn't spread fear that doesn't spread judgment there's no uh there's no one diet that I Uh, advocate for or endorse. Um, It's just very much about understanding the value of those foods that we can add that can supply those nutrients, but then understanding the value of all of those foods that we can add so you can still pick and choose what's going to align with your food preferences, with your budget, with your access to food, as well as, you know, if you want to combine this with a low FODMAP approach uh, to reduce gastrointestinal symptoms due to IBS, you can do that too. Yeah.
2: And I, I have a question and I have like typically what I say to clients, but we've talked about how there's so much noise and fear that's promoted. And I think that when you catch someone that's in that state or they're very fearful, they can understand, like, how, how are you going to break through for them or do you have a message for them? to think, oh, I want to shift how I'm thinking about nutrition. Like, is there – what's the selling point from your website standpoint? I know what I say with with people who are struggling mightily from a nutrition perspective but are very fearful of foods. I'm usually mm-hmm. – my usual take is, like, we have to make sure you're nourished so that you can progress and be healthy and resilient. Um, do you have anything – like specifically that you would tell someone that's like, oh, I want to do it, but I'm fearful. And it might not necessarily be your your typical um, person. I, I don't know if that would be mm-hmm. your typical person, but I was just curious. Because we were talking about the noise yeah. and the fear. I'm like, oh, I want to hook some of those people in. Um, well, I, 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 I
1: come from that myself, right? right. I, I come from restrictive diets. I come oh, from food So do fear. I, too. So, so um, I know Nikki has, too. We've all been there. Yeah. So. All been there. Uh, so uh, a large part of my work now is kind of like correcting the record of where I was wrong before. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think uh, I think that its extra motivating to me to have an incredibly high level of scientific rigor in everything that I do. So my my recommendation to to begin with, like I think that the first place is to have a bit of a conversation about how science works. Um, and the hierarchy of scientific evidence and understanding, right? Like, where am I drawing this information from? What is the level of evidence for uh, talking about the importance of citrus fruits for reducing depression and anxiety risk? What is in citrus fruits that can reduce uh, the risk of depression? So if we're afraid of eating fruit because it's nature's candy, because we don't want to have any sugar, like talking about the the tremendous amount of scientific evidence supporting the health benefits of fruit, uh, the gut health benefits of fruit, how fruit is particularly good for reducing risk of things like diverticular disease. Um, So having that conversation about the quality of the evidence as a precursor for just a, a conversation about the facts What does this food have to offer you? And I find that if we can take emotion out of that conversation and we can talk about evidence, not everyone is open to new information that contradicts their confirmation bias. And that's fine. Uh, My resource will still be here for you for when you are ready to have that conversation. Um, But if you are open to new information that challenges what you held to be true, then that's where my website and my social media and my new book are Really valuable resources because I can show you, I can show you the history of fad diets, right? Starting with Lord Byron in the 1820s, I think, um, and how he basically had an eating disorder and managed to like teach all the Regency ladies that uh, they needed to be super skinny in order for him to find them sexy, and because everyone had a crush on Lord Byron, they went and also ate huge amounts of vinegar in order to suppress their appetites because that's what Lord Byron did and swoon. And oh if you can God. see that fad diets go back that far and it's <sighs> the exact same thing we see now, although it was spread at like different parlor parties instead of on the internet, but like other than the technology in terms of spreading the message, it's the same type of thing of somebody who's charismatic and who conforms to conventional beauty standards saying, uh, here's the thing to do. It worked for me. That's a, that's that's the same level of evidence that uh, we are still making our choices on more like broadly as a society. So being able to shift that conversation to here's this huge body of scientific evidence. Here's how these studies are done. Here's what a meta-analysis is. Did you know that a meta-analysis includes a step where they evaluate the studies for risk of bias? Uh, so they look at things like funding sources. They look at things like, what uh, other, um, right, things that the authors might uh, have, right, other businesses that they might own that might influence how they interpret uh, the data. They look at how well-controlled a study is. So they're assessing study quality and risk for bias uh, in order to determine whether or not those studies are going to be included and how they're going to be weighed in this final analysis. And a meta-analysis is where you combine data from tons of different studies, maybe um. 10 or 20 or 140 different studies that are all looking to answer the same question. And you do that in order to see what the like actual preponderance of evidence supports. So instead of looking for that one scientific paper that confirms this belief, we're looking to see where the scientific consensus is. And if we can start to understand that huge, just like depth of evidence um, and I think to me, like that understanding just how irrefutable some of the things we know about nutrition are, that, that logic can now like beat out the fear, yeah. um, but it does take having an understanding of how science is performed and what, what the, the scientific hierarchy of evidence is. And it takes understanding how someone else can cherry pick studies Or misrepresent studies to sell you something. So that's the other reason for keeping NutriVore free um, and freely accessible um, and to not be peddling a a supplement line or, um, you know, have coaching or whatever, have a thing to sell. Um, I mean, I have more, I have premium resources on my site, I have digital products. But it's, I'm not selling you some, I'm not selling you fear in order to sell my thing. I'm not marketing Nutraver that way. And I think that actually is another piece of the credibility because now we can just jump to here, here is the scientific evidence to help you start to wrap your head around maybe adding this feedback in that you've been avoiding. And then I can tell you how terrified I was when I did that, because I had to deprogram myself from a lot of food value judgments that I had learned in the wellness community and as I was doing this research, uh, first on the gut microbiome and then uh, starting to build NutriVore, I started to realize uh, that I was avoiding foods that were really important for my health. And the fear, adding a food back in, the fear that this is going to trigger symptoms, that this is going to cause for me an autoimmune flare, that fear is, is real and valid. And for me, it took um, it took a few different experiences where... I was shown that my fear was like not uh, not valid, right that this food actually made me feel better. It took a, it took a few different times for the fear to the voice to to finally quiet down and every once in a while I have to challenge myself. I'm like, wait, am I not eating that food because I don't like it or am I not eating that food because I'm afraid of it? And what do I need to learn about that food now to make myself feel comfortable? to eat it. And so I think that also sharing the personal experience of like, yeah, even even though my approach is is so logical and science-based now, I I also come from that diet culture place of food fear and I have personal experience expanding my diet and um, and having that same like I don't know what's going to happen I've eaten this food and now I just got to wait and see and it's t- it's it is it's terrifying yeah but I think it's also super empowering as you progress through challenging different foods and expanding the diet it makes navigating the world so much easier it increases quality of life to have a varied diet increases health too very a diverse diet is one of the most important qualities of a healthy diet and so we can um I think that, you know, explaining that getting over my own fear was also a really hard thing to do, but I can do it. You can too. I think is like the other piece of that conversation, right? So the logic and the facts and how science works, and also you got this <laughs> cheerleading,
0: right? It might not always feel comfortable, but you could do it anyway.
2: Yes, yeah. And I, I having been through that deprogramming experience too. One thing that I'll tell clients as well is. You know, having doubts or some fear, it might take a while for those to dissipate. Usually, again, you get stronger and more confident over time, but you're yeah. going to push yourself a little bit at a time and get outside of your comfort zone with adding things back in. So and that doubt is okay. You can kind of bring it with you and cheer yourself on and be like, I can do it. Um, but it, you're right. It's totally scary if you're not you don't necessarily know what's going to happen because you haven't had experience eating a food in five years or something. Um, So, but yeah, I think it can take, I mean, for me, I feel like it took about a year or maybe even a little longer to totally feel pretty confident around food and to add things back in. Um, So just know it can be a process. It's not going to be a light switch. And if you do have fears and things that come up, that's pretty normal. (laughs) It's not going to be a light switch moment. So just kind of try to be kind to yourself and compassionate through the process um, and keep pushing forward. Even if something doesn't go well, try, try something else, move on to something else and, and build confidence in that way that like you can get back on the horse and eat something a little bit different or save that food till a later date. But yeah, I, I, I like you talking about kind of the reprogramming because that is not an easy thing to do and it takes time. So I just wanted to throw in that reminder for some, anyone that's listening, that's going through that process.
0: Well, honestly, it kind of reminds me of some of the episodes that we've done talking about OCD and health OCD and this idea of like the obsession and the fear and the uncertainty driving behavior and we talked about this in those episodes, that ultimately, the best evidence based approach for treating an OCD sort of situation is to do little challenges. It doesn't mean like, just, I, I'm going to take a for instance here, say that somebody is like really scared of heights, and that's their OCD. And they're at a point where like, they will not even go near a hill, they won't go up or downstairs, they won't go near a sidewalk, because there's a little bit of a ledge near the sidewalk obviously, you can't take that poor person and put them on a roller coaster at Six Flags as their first (laughs) challenge. That would be cruel and unusual and horrible. And they probably have a heart attack at the top anyway. But you know, maybe the baby steps for that person would be to to like walk close to the edge of a sidewalk where there's a little bit of a drop off. And then they could go to like a hilly field and then they could go up one step at their house. But you get the idea like you You progress and you keep challenging it. You keep doing the thing, even if you're scared, and you get less scared and you get more confident the more you do that thing. And I think that reintroducing foods and looking at nutrition in a different way is very much like that. The first time you eat that bite of broccoli or that bite of, I don't know, like beef jerky that you've been terrified of because of histamine, the first time you do that, you're going to be petrified. And that's okay. It will get easier as you do it more and more, and that that voice and that fear will quiet down.
1: I think also it's important to know that not all foods work for all people. And uh, if you reintroduce a food and it does cause symptoms, there is still power in that knowledge, right? Now you have a conclusive, I am avoiding that food for a completely legit reason. This is a food that doesn't work for me. And I think that even, right, even if we're hitting foods that, that do cause symptoms, right, that, that it yes, the thing that we I was afraid of actually happened with this food, that is still a really valuable piece of information to move through life with. So even if our fears are realized, that doesn't necessarily mean that it was wrong to try to introduce that food. It doesn't mean that it was a bad idea or that I messed up, right? Now I have a really important piece of information to inform my food choices moving forward.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and to your point, like I'm a celiac, so I know better than to touch gluten, you know, and my mom is not a celiac to the best of our knowledge. But I can tell you that gluten absolutely does flare up her rheumatoid arthritis. So similarly, she's going to stay gluten free, even though I do end up coaching a lot of my clients on being able to reintroduce wheat, as long as they tolerate it. And we do challenge that at various points. But yeah, I think you're right. Not every food is going to work for every person. So we're not trying to say that. It's just that I think what is far more common is that people are avoiding a lot of foods that they actually could eat. And they're missing out on nutrition because of that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, again, that's why it's shifting our entire mindset towards a permissive structure towards diet expansion instead of diet restriction is so important, because um, even if a restrictive diet feels good right now, it's, it's managing symptoms. Unless you are in chronometer, and you are tracking all of your micronutrients, and you do know that you're getting everything your body needs, uh, like absent that level of rigor, Uh, the chances that those nutrient shortfalls are going to lead to health problems down the road are really high. And I don't think any of us want to trade short-term symptom management for a long-term health problem. Like that is not the goal of any of these diets. And a lot of people don't realize that that is even a potential possibility. So being able to completely shift the narrative around food towards these are really important health-supporting foods... I think actually like fixes that problem before it starts.
0: Yeah, and I don't I don't know what it was about what you just said that made this pop into my brain. But I have a juicy question for you. And perhaps Ooh. for Amy, too. This could be a fun one. <laughs> well, why can't they just take a multivitamin? Hmm.
1: I I have a great answer. I would yes. love to know if a- Amy has the same answer that I have. Guest, guest of honor first. Yeah,
2: guest of um, honor first.
1: You know, we have some huge meta-analyses that show that multivitamins, even though they like certainly improve, uh, they can improve nutrient status, um, even though we can see uh, nutrient intake is increasing, we don't see that translate to improved health outcomes. We don't see a multivitamin reduce risk of cardiovascular disease or reduce risk of cancer, reduce risk of type 2 diabetes. So we don't actually have... Good evidence that there's any benefit to multivitamin. That's not saying that supplementation is useless. Like obviously, I'm taking vitamin D if you have vitamin D deficiency or insufficiency, very very important for overall health. But a a multivitamin just doesn't seem to uh, cause the, the the benefits that we would expect from increasing nutrient intake. There's a lot of possible explanations for that. Uh, I don't think we super know why. Nutrients from food is so far superior to nutrients from a multivitamin could be the forms, could be something to do with nutrient synergy, could be um, the dissolvability of the tablets and how much actually gets into our system Um, could simply be it's not enough that most people need more uh, than what a typical uh, multivitamin supplies. But we just don't we don't see in the literature the health outcomes that you would normally expect from upping your nutrient intake by the amount that a multivitamin would. So uh, until we completely understand that, for most people, uh, it's probably, it's not going to hurt anything. So if you want to take a multivitamin, that's fine. But if your choice is the money on that multivitamin or that money on higher quality whole foods, your money is probably better spent on the whole foods. Yeah, I love, I love
2: that. I, I totally agree. And I think it also, just in general, I think that some people will argue if they are on a restrictive diet and they'll say, well, I'm supplementing. And sometimes they're just supplementing individual, like 10 individual nutrients too at mm-hmm. one time. And you're like, well, ugh, I understand you're trying to band aid. I see what you're trying to do, band aid that the diet's limited. But we just need to get you eating more foods and try to figure out how to manage your symptoms. A little bit better so that we can expand the diet but yeah i think it's a really interesting conversation i think the nutrient synergy piece is really interesting like how food is packaged in in the combinations of different nutrients and the the ratios of different yeah. nutrients in some foods seem to be really synergistic which is really cool where you're not really going to get that if you're loading a multivitamin up with 100 or higher of every nutrient um I also think a lot of the multi uh the, a lot of the multis have nutrients that are going to compete for absorption which does some weird stuff too and again could be this again the synergy conversation um where you know the multis less uh less has less synergy than the actual food forms but yeah, I agree. I mean, I think people are much better off putting time, energy, and resources into getting their nutrition squared away. Um and again, to be fair, even someone like me when you go into chrono- when I go into chronometer and track for a few days, sometimes there's a few things that are a little bit low for me. Usually it's like the same couple nutrients. Um and so uh, you know, I think that even if you're someone that's like nutrition savvy, there can sometimes still be Gaps. And so it's always, and again, I eat a lot of stuff. So usually the people that we're seeing, again, probably the best thing that they can do is just do a little tracking and see how, how deficient they are in things. Like to me, that's such a profound moment to where they're like, oh man, I guess I didn't realize that I was deficient in most vitamins and minerals diet, like with my diet. So even just simply bringing this. To light and looking at what you're eating and what that is, what that is giving you from a vitamin, mineral, macro standpoint as well, but can be really interesting because that's usually when my clients are like, Whoa, I actually will listen to you because I can see that I'm definitely not nourished. Like I can see it clear as day on paper. And I don't know how I can like fill this gap um, with specific things. If it's one nutrient, again, it might be a little bit easier, but. It's tempting. Yeah, it,
0: it, tempting it's, to just take the B12 if that's the only thing that's out of whack, right? But certainly. it usually
2: isn't only one thing, typically. But yeah. yeah, it's it's. I think that can be a really profound exercise just to look at what's going on and analyzing your nutrition a bit, um, even if it's just a few days, just to be like, "Whoa, this is what's going yeah. on here." That's usually the reaction I get from my clients.
0: Yeah. Well, to your point, we do nutritional counseling for a living. And as I said, I'm not an RD, but I think I'm at least moderately savvy with nutrition. I don't hit every metric on chronometer every day. Hardly. I almost always miss a couple, but I'm making very gradual changes to try to address that. So, for example, you and I have talked a lot about my iron over the last couple of years, and I've... Oh, This episode's posting on Christmas. Side note, I have such a juicy video coming out in like a week on my channel about iron absorption. I'm super pumped about it. Um, But I can't give away any more information. You just have to watch it. It's going to be super cool. But anyway, um, I've been kind of tracking my iron over the last couple of years. And it's been not terrible, but not great. And I've kind of been watching it. And I finally did find the solution for me, funny enough. But one of the things that I noticed was when I did chronometer, I went into it kind of arrogant. and I was like, yeah, I, I know I eat enough iron. Psh. And then I did the tracking and I was very humbled to realize, no, I do not. I don't. Oh, and I, I eat everything but gluten. We have a burger or some sort of red meat at least once a week. I eat seafood. I eat chicken. I eat whatever. And I do not consistently hit the metric on iron. So that was a big aha come to Jesus moment for me. And to the point, like for lunch today, one of the things I had was a tin of smoked oysters. And I'm crushing it on my iron today in chronometer. And I'm so excited for that.
1: And you're saying, you <laughs> your like, copper if, and your vitamin B12. And
0: <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, I'm killing on B12 today. That just yeah. shot up like you wouldn't believe. But similarly, if we go out to a restaurant, I kind of intentionally go for the beef or the lamb or the seafood, the thing that I know has the iron, because I'm just trying to be more aware of it and more cognizant of it. So, you know, it's, it's maybe not as sexy as going for like the super fancy iron supplement. But honestly, when I first started dealing with this, I tried the super fancy iron supplement, and it didn't do a damn thing for me. And so I think that the better solution is to gradually increase my iron from food, and also work on this other thing that I'm going to talk about in my YouTube video, and I forget how I got on this tangent exactly, but I guess I wanted to piggyback and say that I do this for a living. And I also have some gaps that I could work on and just learning more and being more aware and trying to make small changes, I think is the right way to go to go back to the thing that started this part of the conversation though, the idea of like, well, why can't I just take a supplement, right? Like why can't I do low FODMAP, low histamine, low oxalate while also taking a vitamin? Some of the things that I tell people about, and this came up in, in my group coaching course not that long ago, was I think A, yeah, the synergy and the form of the vitamin. Like people don't realize that you can put almost anything on a label and yeah. sell it. So for example, what we call vitamin E on a label for a supplement is not the real vitamin E. They put alpha tocopherol in the bottle and they're like dum do, dum do, dum 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 that's vitamin E for you. But actual food-based vitamin E is four tocotrienols and four tocopherols. And we're missing seven of the eight things that make up vitamin E. But we're labeling it vitamin E so the normal person doesn't understand the difference. And they think they're killing it with vitamin E when they take that supplement. So I think that there's that. But to go back to the synergy idea, I actually like, I'm going to borrow this from Michael Pollan. He said in a lecture that he's got on YouTube from like 10 years ago. I I remember this one. He said he was basically saying that nutrition science isn't done yet. We're still learning. It's still evolving. There's new studies coming out all the time. And he, I'm going to borrow two things from him. He said that nutrition science is roughly where the field of surgery was in the 1600s. That is to say. Very fascinating, fun to watch. But maybe you don't want to be the one on the table quite yet, right? (laughs) So we're probably better off doing like old school nutrition and making sure that we are nutrient replete and we're eating, you know, square meals, so to speak. So I thought that that was funny, but I think that he worded this well too. He said so much of nutrition science is trying to pick apart what's in the food and identify the good active stuff and the bad boogeyman stuff. And he said, we don't know what's going on deep inside the soul of a carrot.
1: And I just I thought that that was a beautiful way to put it. (laughs) Uh, uh, I love that. I mean, the the first vitamin was only isolated in 1938. It is objectively a very young field of science. Uh, If you if you think about like, how long the steam locomotive has been around, right? 300-ish years. Uh, so yeah, we, nutritional sciences certainly has some some catching up to do. But we do, you know, thanks to technological advances over the last few decades in science, it's not like we know nothing. We do know a vast amount about how foods interact with our health, and we can use that information to take action now. But I think it's always important to understand that new science can uh, change the landscape of how how we, like the conclusions we draw. So it is also important to understand that science is a process and there's nothing to stop a completely like new understanding of, uh, you know, the RDA of a nutrient uh, to come from some future studies, for example. So um, it is also important to continue to have an open mind to new information. Yeah. Well,
2: I think we definitely know enough to make enough information to give you to make positive changes, which is yeah. great. And I think there's still a lot more to learn. One other, I'd love to get your take on this too, because Nikki and I know have talked about it, where some of our clients will, you know, do all the really fancy testing, you know, mm-hmm. the B12, uh, look at all the nutrients, NutraVals, all this stuff. And I know she was laughing because she was doing little chronometer tracking, and she could kind of see what was deficient, and then it was shown on her blood work. Which, again, blood work can can be helpful, and I think you should get blood work every year. But I also think sometimes we go to the super fancy functional testing or the super fancy nutrition related testing when in general, it probably is a much better idea just to, just to look at your diet first and say, okay, are there any obvious gaps, um, and see what's coming in? Because I, I do think, um, sometimes in the gut health space, there's this idea of like, oh, I'm not absorbing things too. And so, but in reality, they're just not getting enough in dietarily. So they'll say, oh, I'm not I'm not absorbing iron, but in reality, they're not eating enough iron. So You're i wrong, I, Amy.
0: You're wrong. Well, the SIBO's stealing it.
2: Okay. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm I'm totally wrong. But yes. So we get we get we we get in conversations like that. I think sometimes people get really in the weeds. And like I, I know we were saying maybe before we got on the call, sometimes zooming out is so important with our clients of being like, okay. You could zoom in on like each individual deficiency on lab work or test each individual deficiency, but you're probably much better off at first just analyzing what's coming in. Um, So again, I, I, I like that your tool can, can help provide some information to help people get enough in out the gate versus getting really preoccupied with what's going wrong or what's broken. Like let's first see what you're taking in before getting really kind of in the weeds around what's going on on blood. Or again, like doing really intensive tracking and testing. Because again, like it might be something simple, like you're just not getting the iron in. It might not be that you're not absorbing the iron, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. And again, I think that's a so I think one of the challenges we have right now is that most people don't really know what a healthy diet even looks like because there's been so many different messages both in the USDA dietary guidelines and government guidelines from other countries as well as through, you know, popular diets and diet culture over the last 50-ish years. We've lost a lot of uh, sort of like the the uh, ancestral memory of Of different ways of of eating. Um, And we're also at a time when the cheapest foods in the store are the ultra processed foods that don't necessarily have a whole lot nutritionally going on. So we don't necessarily know what are the best choices, or we have an idea of like, that's healthy, that's not healthy, but we don't have a deeper understanding of like, why uh, choosing uh, an apple might be a better choice than than choosing the muffin right because we, we can think they're both healthy but what what nutritionally am I getting from each of those um and maybe I need the apple more maybe you need the muffin more right like that that understanding is something that we don't have right we're not teaching nutritional sciences in school other than my plate and uh, how to identify junk food, right? That is the level of education that our kids are getting. And we could very easily fix this. So to wrap up our conversation with like a really big picture view, we could very easily fix the challenges that we have with diet culture, teaching disordered eating and with people following these restrictive diet plans by providing a broader nutritional sciences education by teaching people just what foods have iron in them and how to measure how much iron they're getting in their day, how to track their micronutrient intake. Imagine if by the time we graduated high school, we had a similar knowledge base about nutritional sciences as we do about math or grammar, right? So now I don't need to remember my times tables. I can pull out my calculator, but I remember how it works. And I know how to find that information, and right now, the amount of nutritional sciences being taught in schools is the visual of my plate, and like this is junk food, and this is this is not. It's really that simplistic. It's actually potentially perpetuating these moral judgments of of foods um, in a way that is making people more susceptible to the diet culture marketing that we've already talked about. But if we could instead, right, have a couple of high school classes or one, just have it, have it be a a massive unit uh, similar to like the health class that our kids need to take, where we just talk about uh, how vitamins and what foods have them, minerals and what foods have them. um, The importance of uh, protein. We could just teach the acceptable macronutrient distribution ranges, right. As a, broad concept and then teach kids how to find out how much iron they're getting from their food. Um, teach kids how to track their micronutrient intake. If if we graduated from high school with that type of just broad knowledge base, it it does you can always have the like kid who wants to be a registered dietitian when they grow up take the AP version of the whatever class. But if we just taught that that general nutritional sciences education that we know uh, because we have those knowledge bases is incredibly helpful in informing our food choices. If everyone had that, it wouldn't just help people eat a higher quality diet and have fewer nutrient shortfalls, but it would also inure them to misinformation online, right? Because they would have this broad knowledge base that you can hear somebody say, Oh, you need to cut out all of these food toxins. You can go, that's not right. Those foods have these great things in them, right? It just when you have that broader knowledge, it makes it so much easier to discern when someone is telling you something that's complete BS.
0: That's Mm. such a good point. Actually, if you have some foundational knowledge about the fields, you can weed through the BS more. And I I was trying to think about an example to go off of like, if you know nothing about astrophysics, Mm -hmm. I could tell you that they fuel rocket ships with beet juice. And yep. you wouldn't know how to prove
1: me wrong, mm-hmm. or if I'm wrong, you would just well, roll with it. Potentially, I'm pretty sure you're true. I'm pretty sure that one's accurate. That <laughs> okay. is, I
0: actually, I just googled it, so I know I'm for a fact. Because I'm married to an
1: astrophysicist, fun, fun. fun oh my enough. god! <laughs> of all the fields I could have picked, <laughs> I know that's <it> <laughs> <know>. hilarious. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, again, this was meant to be on so many different levels, but you get the idea, right? If you know nothing about nutrition. And then you go on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or whatever, and you hear that lectins are evil and dietary yeah. histamine is evil and oxalate is evil and meat is evil and saturated fat is evil. You don't know how to tell truth from not truth. And it's so you yeah. think
1: you have to avoid all of those, which is every food.
0: And that's what a lot of people do. I, yeah. so in my coaching program, I'd have like one module early on that's like nutrition just really kind of cursory view of nutrition and the importance of diversity from a microbiota standpoint. Mm -hmm. And then about midway through the program, there's another module where we take more of a deep dive on individual vitamins and minerals. And every single time I go through those two modules, people ask me, well, can I just take a vitamin? And we have that conversation. But, you know, there's always at least a handful of people on some squirrely restricted diet, and they're getting none of a certain nutrient. And it it kind of opens their eyes to, oh my God, B12 actually matters. Or, oh, iron actually matters. It's like, we should all know this. In an ideal world, we should all know this. But to your point, this is not part of our education. And we just have all of this fear-mongering stuff online.
1: I had someone on a a post just the other day on social media go, wait, there's a vitamin K? (laughs) Right. Yeah, there is. And I think that that is the challenge, right? So we're not talking to a... Uh, knowledgeable uh, population right so um, it makes also the importance of like just putting out really basic nutritional information out there it, it makes that just so much more valuable because these are things that we may have forgotten we ne- there was a time that we didn't know because of the level of uh, education that that we have acquired on nutrition uh, and the level that we've learned beyond just uh, formal education. But most people don't don't know that there's a B12 or don't don't know that there's like weirdly no B10 or 11 anymore, right? Like just don't don't have that uh, super basic knowledge. Um, and even if they've heard of B12 before, maybe don't understand how important it is for mental clarity and cognition or uh, energy levels throughout the day, right? Don't really know that you might be feeling crummy right now, and it is 100% attributable to not having any food sources of vitamin B12 in your diet, um, not to mention increasing long-term risk for uh, dementia and neurodegenerative disease as well, right? Like that that base knowledge doesn't exist, but it would completely change the landscape of public health if it did.
0: Mm. Well, and in a way, you're kind of providing that with your work and with Nutrivore. And I'm I'm gonna say something that um is a bummer. But I think you're totally going to get what I'm saying. I think that you are dealing with a, a similar but exacerbated issue that I deal with and with my content creation, which is I've joked with people for years now. I'm like, I know how YouTube works. I've had a YouTube channel for long enough. I've studied it enough. I know exactly how YouTube works. I will get a million clicks and likes and I'll be on the damn trending list if I make a video that's scary enough. So, for example, if I, you know, if I made a clickbaity video that said everybody has candida and we're all going to die, oh, man, would that trend quickly. It's going to get 10x the views. Yep. Exactly. And similarly, I've I've joked, if I make a video of the top three reasons why spinach is killing you, I'm going to get all the clicks and all the views. But if I make a video, top three nutrients found in spinach... (laughs) There's going to be like three people who click on that, and I see your content, which is so valuable, and and you're you're actually making that exact type of content that I sometimes joke about, and you and I both I think are growing our U- YouTube channels in particular slowly but surely, and we're trying not to fall prey to this like clickbaity yeah. mongery crap that's out in the rest of the internet, and it. I don't know about you, but every now and then I do get frustrated seeing the fearmongery channels explode in popularity. It, it's hard to not be envious of that. But then I kind of check back in and say, no, 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 I'm doing it the right way. And I'm providing the good information. And I'm not going to follow that trend just because it looks like they're more successful or they were successful more quickly.
1: So I have... Two thoughts. First is one of the things that I've experienced on my social media just in the last few weeks is a huge uptake in engagement and new accounts reached. And this really overwhelmingly positive feedback of people going like, oh, this content is a breath of fresh air. I'm so tired of all of the fear-mongering. I didn't know this. This is amazing. Who knew iceberg lettuce was not just crunchy water, that it's actually nutritionally valuable. Thank you for this. It's my favorite lettuce. It's the only lettuce I want to eat, right? That type of... Um, just like overwhelmingly positive feedback. And I've just seen this uh, increase with the launch of threads really is 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 the platform that that started in, but I'm mm. seeing it now spread to other platforms. And I think um, that is giving me hope that it's just a persistence issue, because there really does need to be this positive voice that just tells you, yeah, there is a vitamin K and it's really important for reducing risk of cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis, right? And uh, you can get it from leafy greens, but any green vegetable will, will have it. Like just, just that little bit of, of a tidbit of information in that positive way without the 3 ways spinach is going to kill you. I, <laughs> I see they're actually, that's resonating more and more with people. And I see this shift happening in how people are consuming diet culture messaging on social media, where people are tired of it. Like I can see the pendulum in my own social media interactions. I can see that pendulum starting to swing. And I think um, I think even in a year, we're gonna be dealing with a completely different uh, ecosystem in terms of uh, how people are engaging with uh, nutrition information. I think it's just people are ready to leave. I think fear has hit maximum. And people are ready to leave that behind. So I'm seeing that shift in real time as we have this conversation. It doesn't necessarily lead to virality, but it does lead to a really engaged uh, community and a very supportive community. And that is more important to me than a viral video uh, any day of the week. So I am seeing that start to change. And I think the other decision that I've had to make recently is I also don't want to spend all of my time and energy responding to the fear mongering. Because that fear-mongering takes somebody five seconds to say some outlandish, crazy thing that then a million people believe and stop eating whatever, spinach or kale or whatever it is. And it takes me 10 hours of research to lay out the case for why that's not true yep. um, for a 1% of the views, right? So to me, I've, I've just made the the ver- like a strategic decision that that is not a worth my time investment, um, especially when I'm seeing just good positive information about the, you know, what nutrients do and the benefits of the foods that contain them when I'm seeing that resonate. And I've had to make the decision that my presence on social media is not going to be engaging with those myths. I, yes, I will have to myth bust from time to time, like every once in a while, uh, in order to say this food is good, I will have to say this myth you've heard about it is wrong. But um, but being able to to really switch that mindset towards a permissive mindset and provide that broad nutritional sciences education i am seeing that actively grow my audience on social media in a way that i have not seen for 10 years and that is a it's a really exciting place to be to be like feeling like i'm watching this entire shift in that this like nutritional sciences, social media ecosystem happen in real time. So I think the persistence is, is the persistence of positive messaging, like is the game now.
2: Mm. I agree. More positivity. I hate those fear (laughs) mongering. I'm done with the fear mongering too.
0: Yeah. 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 I think we're all done, but, uh, I have, I have one more thing I'd like to noodle on with you. Food pun okay. intended, by the way. Well, I uh, have one more.
2: I, I had one more thing too. It was I just wanted to. This was something that Nikki and I talked about in the past. I don't know if you ever heard of these stats. There was some survey where they looked at people who thought they were eating fiber, like getting enough fiber. Ooh. Nikki, was it like sixty-seven percent
0: or something? It was like 70%. seventy percent. Yeah, seventy. of Americans actually get enough dietary fiber. 67% of Americans believe they are getting enough dietary fiber. So 62% (laughs) of us are incorrect. (laughs) And that it was like the remaining 33% of people know damn well they're not getting enough fiber.
2: Right. So basically, again, that whole survey in a nutshell, I think, shows some of the nutrition literacy issues that are at play in the U.S. But I just wanted to to throw that in there because I think yeah. it's it's also big in the microbiome space because so many of our clients think they're getting fiber, but they're not. So they're, but yeah, I was I was just throwing that in there as an added uh, uh, liter- nutrition literacy thing that pretty much highlights that, oh, just some of the basic 101 things, perception is not necessarily the
1: reality. I wonder how much, so I haven't seen that survey, but I wonder how much of that is the, like eight grams of whole grains phenomenon, the way whole grains have oh, to be yeah. labeled, right? So you think you're getting eight grams of fiber, but really you're getting a product that's like twenty percent whole grains and eighty percent refined grains. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if that is largely driven by that phenomenon, because I think the the you know whole grain uh, whole grain labeling is can be very very deceptive, and i mm-hmm. I think that that most people are eating vastly more refined grains than they are whole grains, even if they think they're choosing whole grain products. Right. I wonder how much of that is is simply that one little thing that could be fixed with a labeling law.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. even like the, the labeling laws that are like good sources of fiber.
1: Yeah. It's like you're like, is it? It has it, to have it's... 2.5 grams. All right. It's like, is 2.5 it? grams, and you can call it a good I mean, source of fiber.
2: That's right. That's 10%. So, yeah, it's – I think the the food labeling is a whole can of worms that I'm sure – you'll cover like, you know, in the, in your stuff, but yeah, it's, I agree. I think it probably could be fixed pretty easily.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think also um, this is a notoriously sticky sticking point for nutrition research too, right? Like if you do nutrition research and you leave it up to the individual to log their nutrition, you're going to get a lot more error because our ability to eyeball what a tablespoon is or what a quarter of a cup is or what 500 grams is, like is really shoddy yeah. versus when you do nutrition research and all of the food is provided for the participants or it's like prepared in a kitchen and then they eat it in the kitchen that it's prepared in. And it's, I think that that's one of the many things that makes nutrition research difficult to do. The other one being, you know, when you're eating broccoli and you know, when you're eating placebo broccoli, <laughs> Like right. there, there's no placebo for a lot of this stuff. And yeah. that just makes it a little layer more complicated to research, something like nutrition versus a pill. And yeah, it's it's just another layer of complexity. But um to to go back to my thing that I wanted to wrap up with, so you mentioned at some point, maybe an hour ago in our conversation, that you as you started to kind of this evolution of Nutrivore and and what you're doing right now. You mentioned that it started with an interest in the gut microbiome. Yes. And then this, this was kind of born out of that initially. So I'm just curious, do you have any particular things about the gut microbiome that you would like to discuss, or share acknowledging like, that's a main focus of the people we work with, sometimes to their detriment, sometimes our people need to focus on the microbiome a little bit less. But the things that I've always harped on, or I've, I have for a lot of years, and I know Amy does too, is getting enough fiber and prebiotic in your diet, but also getting a diversity of, of fiber sources and prebiotic sources. And again, this goes back to this idea of diversity and having a, an open, permissive, diverse diet, um, but do you have anything that you would like to share about the microbiome specifically?
1: Yeah. Uh, So my, my deprogramming, I don't think I, I mentioned my deprogramming started with uh, writing a book about the gut microbiome that has a project that I walked away from at the beginning of 2020 um, that I hope to revisit at some day because it is like 90% complete. Um, But that was, you know, seven years of research um, that uh, still doesn't, uh, live in any form other than an ebook, which would be very nice for it to to be out there in the world. Um, and I, that for me was understanding the importance of that vibrant and diverse community of microbes in our gastrointestinal tract to our overall health, and how we have some bacteria that oh, they could care less what food we feed them. Right? They don't. They whatever. They they don't they don't care. But They're cool, man. These, They'll eat anything. Right? <laughs> um, but then we have these like super picky like little pet microbes in our gut that will only thrive if we give them their favorite food and we have a whole bunch of them. So they have a whole bunch of different favorite foods and we can't, there's no way to supplement fiber and, provide that type of diversity of fiber structures that have the exact right type of molecular bonds between uh, like carbohydrates and the structure that will uh, align with the uh, cas enzymes that that one bacteria has that will allow it to ferment that one particular substrate. That system is so fantastically complex. We understand the tiniest tip of the iceberg about it. The thing we understand is that foods provide that diversity of fiber, especially when you eat a diversity of plant foods. That's why the Human Gut Project uh, showed that people who consumed 30 or more different plant foods in a week had substantially healthier gut microbiomes than people who consumed 10 or fewer plant foods per week. Um, And it's because fiber is not just one thing it's thousands of different things and it's maybe dozens to hundreds of different things within one food. And so when we consume whole foods and we consume a wide variety of of different plant foods, the chances of having the favorite food for really important like niche species of like bacteria or archaea in our gut is much much higher and then we can add right inoculation by adding fermented foods. But I think that the gut microbiome actually strengthens my argument for nutrivore because our gut bacteria want high dietary diversity. They want us to eat a wide range of plant foods. They want us to eat more plant foods than animal foods, Uh, but they do like it when we're omnivores as a general rule. Um, They um, also are very sensitive to our nutrient intake. So they, uh, you know, alchemy is not a thing. So they can't make minerals, right? Minerals are chemical elements. They need us to to consume those minerals for them to have the minerals they need for whatever biochemical processes. They can make uh, most of the, the vitamins in different quantities. So they're, they're good at that. They still need the energy to be able to do that, right? So we still need to feed them the food, which is fiber, right? If fiber is their food, okay, they can eat some protein and they can eat some simpler carbs. But uh, so I think that for me, where the the gut microbiome kind of becomes like the bookends of my journey to creating NutriVore, because it was the thing that made me realize I was wrong in the first place. But when I come back to like why NutriVore is such a powerful approach to improving diet quality, it's through the benefits of a diverse plant forward nutrient focused diet and how that benefits gut microbiome composition, and then how that radiates out to improve the health of every system in our bodies.
0: Yeah, I don't think, I don't think we could have said it better ourselves. Um, Diversity and plant forward. Again, it, it reminds me a little bit of Michael Pollan and his bit about eat food, not too much, mostly plants. It we've, we as a species have overcomplicated nutrition for so long at this point point. And it's wicked cool. And I love reading the studies and I love like getting into the nitty gritty. But at the end of the day, try to eat healthfully most of the time. But every now and then, if you want that piece of wedding cake or that brownie or that whatever, like it's not the end of the world. It's not going to kill you, even if it has oxalates in it or whatever. And yeah, just try. What I honestly tell people a lot of the time when I'm talking about it really flippantly is be a damn grown up eat healthy stuff like 90% of the time, don't overcomplicate it. And then when you want a treat, just have a
1: treat and don't yeah. agonize over it. That's all you have to do. I, I agree. So I, I think the more nutrient dense foods you consume, the more room you have for that treat, right? Exactly. Um, and that's why Nutrifer looks at not whether or not a food is good or bad, but the quality of the whole diet. So did you get all into the green on all of those bars in your chronometer? yes, then that's, that's NutriVore, right? That is what NutriVore is. It is getting all of the nutrients our bodies need from the foods we eat and understanding that there's many different ways that you can do that. There's many different ways that you can choose foods to reach that goal. So you don't need to be formulaic about it. You just need that, that base knowledge. And, um, and that to me is like why NutriVore is such an important philosophy to be bringing to the public now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Touche. And I'll, uh, I'll have to email uh, over the bit about the fiber, the study with the 5% and the 67%. There's one other that I think you'll get a kick out of. And it was a pretty big study, but I don't remember just how big now. But um, they showed decreased all-cause mortality from eating five servings of fruits and vegetables per day. Mm -hmm. But they did not see an added benefit to eating more than that necessarily, which I I found interesting and and it's not to say I wouldn't encourage somebody to eat six or seven servings of fruits and vegetables, but I think to, maybe to wrap up on this point is that I think that oftentimes having a good diet feels really unobtainable to people mm-hmm. for numerous reasons. And one of the many reasons I think is that we see these well-intended protocols and diets like it, it comes to mind the Walls Protocol, Terry yeah. Walls. And she's advocating nine servings of vegetables a day or fruits and vegetables, I think like vegetables and berries. Anyway, she's advocating nine per day. And that's wonderful and tremendous. And like, that's a great goal to work toward. But also, I think that sometimes we could see a system like that, or a goal like that and get kind of freaked out. Because if you're only eating one serving of fruit and one vegetable, if well, that per the day,
1: average consumption is 1.6 servings of fruits plus vegetables day
0: yeah see yeah, like right if now. you're there and you see well-intended very smart people saying that you have to eat nine or more servings a day that just feels like such an impossible yeah, feat. it's a barrier
1: to entry yeah
0: and and again like i I just share in some of my work occasionally that there was this really pretty good sized study i think it was like three hundred thousand people so it's decent and five per day like this, shoot this for that the one, first
1: I, I think i saw this because it was in circulation or something like that uh I think it was in a heart heart journal of some kind. I
0: forget which journal um, it was now.
1: I know I, I could dig it up. It was up very specifically like two servings of fruit and three servings of vegetables, right? That is, are we talk about the same one. Yeah. I think so. So what I find fascinating is I don't think there's scientific consensus on optimal vegetable servings right now. Because there are other studies that show like two or three servings of fruit and then 5 servings of vegetables. And there is one from like 2017 that really shows that the the uh, all cause mortality doesn't really level out until you hit 8 servings of vegetables per day. So I sort of read this as going like if if where you're starting is 1, 3 is an amazing goal. Like let's let's shoot there first. If you're starting at 3, maybe 5 is a great goal. I don't know if I can make a really strong evidence to like a strong argument to go from five to eight. Um, I think the preponderance of evidence hurt, is around five. I, it's definitely not going to hurt. Uh, there's definitely, you know, the, the all-cause mortality curve sort of levels off. It's not a U-shaped curve where it starts to, like, backslide. But it is with fruit. So fruit above five or six servings per day, that is still better than zero, but not as good as that like sweet spot around two or three servings per day. And I think that has much, like a much stronger body of evidence kind of showing for fruit that two to three is kind of where it's at. Whereas vegetables, I don't, we're trying to measure exactly where that curve levels off. And I, I think different studies are showing it leveling off in different places. So we just need, we, need, we just need more data, which I mean, awesome. Less, I love more data. Data would yet. be great. Yeah, it, it's, it's like exactly like science is a process.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that there are, I guess the the point of sharing that was, there are a lot of things that people could do at home for free or very cheap. And, you know, they could learn about nutrition with something like NutriVore, the book or the website, once the book is out, they can learn about their own nutritional intake with something like chronometer, which is a free app, if you use that version, or it's like five bucks a month for the souped up version of the app. Um, and their you know, just really bare bones, unsexy stuff, if you know darn well that you're only eating one fruit and one vegetable per day, or 1.6 on average combined, then try to increase that there is data to support that. But it doesn't have to be this mystical far away thing where you're eating only organic grapes and nothing but organic grapes. It doesn't have to be that. There are so many steps that normal people can take sitting at home listening to this episode and they maybe don't realize it or they don't don't see the relevance of taking those steps. And I just really hope that this episode brought them one step closer to realizing that and realizing their health goals.
1: It also doesn't need to be perfect to be beneficial. Yeah. Right? We get benefit from every step we make towards a more whole foods, plant-forward, nutrient-focused diet. So we can take it in baby steps and set ourselves up for the long-term success rather than taking a traditional diet mentality to it.
0: Yep. I think that was well said. Now let's have a little bit of fun. Amy, I'm going to have you close out the episode. Take it away, my dear. What? (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
2: I typically don't close. Oh, my gosh. Well...
0: This is your other Christmas present, people. You get to see Amy awkwardly (laughs) close out this episode. You're welcome.
2: All right. Go, Amy, go. Go, Amy, go. I am super happy that Dr. Sarah was able to join us on this call. I think it will be super beneficial to our um, listeners. And I want everyone to check out NutriVore because I was clicking through it before we jumped on and really enjoying myself. Um, and I think it's going to be a great resource to fill in those nutritional gaps, those nutritional learning gaps that we all have, um, or a lot of us have. So yeah, I I am I thoroughly enjoyed myself on this episode. And Merry Christmas, everybody, and ho, ho, ho. good night.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well done, Amy. and thank you, oh Doctor Sarah, gosh. for joining us. Uh, thank you again. This was fun.